remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. Give your ear to the gospel of God. After this, after healing the nobleman's son, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem from Galilee. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at certain time, at a certain time, into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand and to do your word. May the spirit who inspired these words and who lives in us help us to know what they mean and to know how to live in accordance with them. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. Do you want to be made well? It's quite a question to ask a man who has been crippled for 38 years. But that's the question Jesus asks him in verse 6. Do you want to be made well? We're thinking, of course he wants to be made well. What kind of a question is that? Who wouldn't want to be made 
well. Who wouldn't want to be healed in this situation? Why else would he be by this pool, the pool of Bethesda? Everyone was there to be healed. But Jesus still asks, do you want to be made well? And this is the question that Jesus asks of everyone, specifically all of us. This question summarizes the great problems in our lives, sums up the greatest problem in everyone's life, in your life, whatever it is. Jesus can heal every situation, every person. He can make you well. He can make you totally well. But do you really want to be made well? What if being made well doesn't look like what you think it would look like? What if truly being made well means a change inside of you more than it means a change inside of someone else? If if being made well meant a renovation of your heart instead of a renovation of your circumstances, would you still want God to make you well? What if being made well will require more of you than you've ever been willing to give so far? Do you really want to be made well? Now, for those of us who are already Christians, we know that we have already received the ultimate, the most important healing that Jesus offers. He has forgiven our sins He has healed us in that fundamental sense. He has made us well because he has made us right with God. There's no greater gift, no greater healing than that. But we must keep asking ourselves the question that Jesus asked this crippled man. Who was waiting for God through the angel at the pool to miraculously heal him. Do you want to be made well? Because we still have much, many needs. We still have much that needs healing. We keep finding more and more sick places in our hearts that need to be made whole. That need to be made well. We're still broken. We continue to sin. We continue To be sinned against. We continue to allow sins to lie hidden in our souls within us. We continue to harbor bitterness against those who have offended us. We let unresolved conflict eat us up. We continue to forget what we have inherited as children of the living God. And the list goes on. There are many maladies that need to be healed in every single heart in this sanctuary. There are many spiritual ailments that are hampering the the work of Christ, the grace of Christ in your life and in my life. They're taking their toll on you and your walk with Christ. They're keeping you from living In the power of God. In the fullness of God's power. They're preventing you from 
living in the joy and in the peace of the Lord? And do you really want to be made well? Do you want those things to be truly resolved in the right way, in the best way, in the way that God resolves things? Are you ready for what being healed will mean for your life? When Jesus makes people well, he requires them to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. When Jesus restores brokenness, he demands repentance. Have you counted the cost of being made well? Jesus is the healer. He's the great physician. He is the God man who can make you well in every way. If you are a believer, he's already made you well in the most important sense. He's dealt with your sins and he can and he will continue to make you well on the cross. He accomplished everything that you need to continue the healing process. He's giving he has given you everything that you need for life and godliness for life and a godly life. But if you want to live in the fullness of the joy that God has accomplished for you, you must put away the sin that is entangling you. It's one of the messages of this story. You must deal with the hard heart that is hampering you. You must, as Jesus puts it in verse 14, sin no more. The main idea of this passage is summarized in verse 14, where Jesus says to the man, see, you've been made well, sin no more. You've been made well, therefore, sin no more. Of course, he doesn't, he's not expecting a literal sinning no more. In the sense that he thinks that this life, or that this man can live a perfect life. But he is saying to turn away from your sin. Brothers and sisters, you have been made well so that you might put away sin. You have been healed to be holy. If you're willing to be holy, then I believe you when you say that you want to be made well. If you're not willing to be holy, if you're not willing to sin no more, if, if you're not willing to let the holiness of Jesus invade all the secret and sacred unholy places in your heart, then you're not willing to be made well. You don't really want to be healed. The second question in your outline, which is the second main point, is this, how has Jesus made you well? We are the people of God. As the people of God, we know that Jesus has done a work in us and for us on the cross. What has Jesus done on your behalf to bring you healing? This story points to four ways, at least, in which Jesus has made you well. It highlights four aspects of the great salvation that Jesus has purchased for you and applied to you. First, Jesus has watered your dry ground. Second, Jesus has brought you into the promised land. Third, Jesus has given you resurrection life. And fourth, Jesus has given you Sabbath rest. And rather than seeing these things as four different 
things, I want you to see them as four perspectives on the same thing. These are four angles on your redemption in Christ. And after we consider each one of these in turn, we'll consider the final question in your outline. How then should you live? What should your response be to Jesus, your God and your Savior, in light of what he has done for you? And the primary answer to that is in verse 14. Stop sinning. You've been healed to be holy. Now, there's a preview where we're going. But before we dig into this passage, we're going to have to get just a little bit technical for about five, maybe eight minutes or so. And look briefly at a minor problem in our text. If I lose you on this, just I'll come back in about five minutes or so. And it's related to verses 3 and 4. In most modern Bibles, the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are missing from John 5, or in many of them. Some Bibles leave these verses in the text, but put brackets around them to indicate that they don't think they belong in the text. Other Bibles remove them completely from the main text and then just relegate them to a footnote or a margin note. For example, if, you, if you're using an ESV or an NIV, and I'm not condemning these translations, by the way, but if you have an ESV or an NIV, you'll notice that there is no verse 4 at all. It skips from verse 3 to verse 5. The second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 have been, as I said, relegated to a footnote or a margin note. I think in all of the published ESVs and NIVs, I may, there may be some that are different. If you have an NASB or a Holman Christian Standard Bible, you'll notice that the translators have put the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 in the main text, but... They put those brackets around it to draw your attention to it. And they're telling you with those brackets that they don't think this part is authentic. They don't believe that John actually wrote this part. They think that someone added it to John's gospel much later. After John had written it. After John was probably dead. But I believe they're mistaken. I believe that the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 do belong in the text. They are inspired by God. John did write them with his own pen. In this sense, uh, I think the New King James is right. They, they leave him in there. And then the New King James Version has a footnote explaining that some versions don't include it. But they do include it. And I think they ought to in this situation. Now, before I go on, this is there's no crucial doctrine Hanging in the balance here. Okay, so this is not of critical importance, but I do want to explain this to you so that you can know how to navigate these very few parts of your Bible where the the editors, the translators put these notes or these brackets so that it doesn't trouble you. It should not trouble you. This has been a quote unquote problem for the entire history of the church where we've had to wrestle with different manuscripts that say different things and we have to figure out 
which ones are the best, which ones go back to the original. And I, it's generally very easy to do that. And then there are very few instances where scholars disagree. And the reasons that scholars give for rejecting these, this passage, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, in my opinion, are very flimsy. And the reason for keeping them are very strong. And so let's consider what these verses say. Second half of verse 3, verse 4. It's where John explains why all these sick people congregated at this pool, the pool of Bethesda. It says in verse 3 that they were waiting for the moving of the water. In verse 4, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. This is an ongoing thing. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, admittedly, that's odd, right? And the main two reasons that modern Bible translators don't think this passage is original, and I'm, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying it a little here. Two reasons. It does not appear in all of the Greek manuscripts. Just correct, it doesn't. And two, it's a bizarre passage that some people think poses theological problems but i don't think it does it is bizarre but i don't think those are two good reasons for rejecting this after all the passage does appear in the overwhelming majority of the greek manuscripts and the language in this passage resembles the language used elsewhere in john's gospel plus verse 7 makes no sense At all, without verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 7. It says, the sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no man to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. That would be very, it would be impossible to understand what's behind that. The background there, if 3 and 4 were not there. So verse 7 makes no sense without verses 3 and 4 telling us that it was an angel who stirred up the water, and that the first person to enter the pool was healed. It would have been very unlikely for John to give us verse 7, which cries for an explanation, without some kind of comment on how the water got stirred, or at least on uh, what people thought about how the water got stirred, and why people thought that the stirred water had healing power. That would have been very uncharacteristic of John who takes great pains in his gospel to explain details and customs and background. Back in chapter 2, John gives more details about the water pots than than we need, or at least it seems that way. Chapter 9, he explains the symbolic meaning of the pool of Siloam. And even here in John 5, he gives us extra details about the pool of Bethesda, telling us that it had five porches. And so we would expect John to say something about this odd situation in verse 7. One of the strangest things in the gospel. And yet without verse, the second half of 3 and verse 4, there's no explanation. Now, of course, some scholars will respond by saying that this is precisely why verses 3 and 4 were inserted later. To provide that explanation that verse 7 needs. But there are several problems with that. One problem is that if someone had felt the need to insert an explanation 
into verse 7, it would have made more sense to insert the explanation in verse 7, or right after verse 7, rather than three sentences earlier. A parenthetical note would have made more sense rather than making up a story and telling it as true. Something like it was commonly believed that an angel would stir the water and that the first person to enter after the stirring would be healed. Now that's, that's a very simplified version of the argument for keeping verses 3 and 4. So if I lost you, I'll just boil it down. The bottom line is that the manuscript evidence and the stylistic evidence strongly indicate that the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 are authentic. They're God's inspired word. They should not be expunged from our modern Bibles. Now, let's get back to the sermon. And consider the second question in your outline. How has Jesus made you well? In particular, let's look at the first answer to that question. Jesus has watered your dry ground. Where do I get this? Let me reread verses 1 to 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Maybe Passover, maybe not. We don't know for sure. Now, there, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. Now, what's interesting about verse 2 is that for a long time, archaeologists could not find this pool, this apparently big pool with five porches, porticos, and some kind of roof, a shade. How in the world could this have existed and, not, and yet not be found? But... In the late 19th century, archaeologists did find it. And in fact, it had five porches, just as the text says. In the, in the 20th century, as they kept digging, they figured out what it was. And so the skeptics were silenced, in this case, by the evidence. But we should always know that when we don't have evidence, when we don't have an explanation from the science or from the archaeology, we can still trust God's word. Verse 3, in these porches lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now look at verse 3 at the word paralyzed. Some translations say withered. Either one works. Some of these sick people at the pool of Bethesda were paralyzed or withered. And this describes the man that Jesus healed. He was paralyzed or withered. But here's here's what I want you to see, to know. The word paralyzed or withered literally means dry, dried up. The noun form is dried ground. Psalm 107.35 that we read earlier says that God turns the desert into pools of water. He turns parched land into springs of water. This man has finally found water for his desert. The God-man has watered his parched land. He didn't find that water at the pool of Bethesda where where there's plenty of water. He found it in Jesus Another way of saying this is that Jesus has breathed new life into this man's dry bones. In fact, if I could redo the handout that you have, instead of putting Jesus has watered your dry ground, which fits okay, 
I would put Jesus has breathed life into your dry bones, which is actually better. The word John uses in verse three, withered, dry, dried up, is the same word that appears three times in the passage that I read from Ezekiel 37 in the Greek version of Ezekiel 37, which is a well-known passage about the valley of dry bones. So the Greek version contains the word dry, dried up three times. Let me just quickly read them to you again. Ezekiel 37, 2. Then he caused me to pass by the bones all around and behold, there were very many bones in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. Verse 4. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry. Our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off. And you remember in this same passage. Jesus is or that God, the Lord. is telling them that they will be raised, raised up. They will rise up out of the grave. They will stand. These dead, dry bones will stand. They will rise to their feet and walk. Jesus came to this man at Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, for the purpose of breathing life into his bones. He came to water his dry ground. He picked him out of the crowd, many people there, because he wanted to pour out on him, in particular, the living water that John loves to talk about in his gospel. And this is what Jesus has done for you. If you believe in him, And walk with him. He has breathed new life into your dry bones. He has watered your parched ground. The flow of water that came out of his side on the cross. Gives you new life. The blood atones for your sins. And the water and the spirit cause you to be born again. From above. Regenerated. Rebirthed from above. God has healed you with the blood and water coming out of his side. He has made you well. He has forgiven your sins. He has caused you to come up out of the grave. He has lifted you up out of the valley of dry bones. He has breathed new life into those dry bones. And he has watered your dry ground. Second, Jesus has brought you into the promised land. And where do I get this? Look at verses 5 to 7. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. While I'm coming, another man, another steps down before me. John makes a point here to tell us that This man had been paralyzed for how long? 38 years. And the church fathers are are better than a lot of modern commentators on this. The church fathers were right to connect this man's 38 years of illness with the 38 years that Israel languished in the desert at Kadesh Barnea before entering the promised land. Listen to what Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 2.14. In the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea, 
until we crossed the the brook Zered was 38 years. Until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Just as God brought Israel, some of Israel, into the promised land after they had been languishing in the desert for 38 years, so also Jesus has brought this man into the promised land after he had been languishing in his dried up state for 38 years. Jesus is the new Joshua who leads his people into the promised land. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, which whose name in Greek, Jesus, is the Greek name for Joshua, Yeshua in the Old Testament. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the new Joshua, not only accomplished your freedom from Egypt, it also gained you access into the promised land. Jesus has set you free from the tyranny of the devil, the enslavement of the devil, but he has also given you the land flowing with milk and honey. He has rescued you from eternal death. He's also given you eternal life. Jesus has brought you out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he will continue to give you success as you drive out the Canaanites. Your heart still has Canaanites in it. Until you die, your heart will have Canaanites in it. You've been healed. You've been made well. The 38 years are over. However, there's still healing to be done. There are still Canaanites to drive out. And that brings us back to our problem, doesn't it? Driving out the Canaanites is hard work. Do you really want to do it? Being made well by Jesus is hard work. It usually requires more than we are willing to give. Do you really want to be made well? Do you really want Him to continue in you the healing process? Do you want Him to continue driving out those Canaanites? Or do you kind of like them there? Are you willing to be holy? Are you willing to put sin to death? Are you willing to do what God has called you to do now that the 38 years are over and you're healed and in the promised land? Third, Jesus has given you resurrection life. And you can begin to see how these points overlap with one another. Let me read verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your mat or your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well of his bed and he walked to be made well look at the parallel between verses 8 and 9 to be made well in verse 9 is to be raised is to rise to be raised from the dead by God when Jesus tells the man to rise he uses a resurrection verb it's the same verb that John and the other gospel writers use to describe Christ's resurrection from the dead For example, in John 21, 14, says this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Same verb there. Matthew uses it. The gospel writers use it. When Jesus told the man to rise, take up his mat and walk, he was telling him to rise from the dead. 
and to walk in the newness of life. In Romans 6, Paul connects resurrection life, new life in Christ, the resurrection life with walking in the newness of life. He says that God the Father has raised you from the dead so that you might walk in the newness of resurrection life. Listen to Romans 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Jesus says, no, sin no more. By no means, Paul says, how can he who died to sin, you, me, still live in it? Do you not do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, same same verb, raised from the dead by the glory of God, of the father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus has summoned you. From the grave. He bids you rise. Take up your bed and walk. Through your faith and your baptism, as Paul says here, you have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ to walk in righteousness. For Jesus has given you Sabbath rest. Jesus didn't have to heal this man on the Sabbath day. He could have waited one more day and it wouldn't have been on the Sabbath. The Jews wouldn't have been so upset with him, perhaps. I mean, the man had been waiting 38 years. What's one more day to not do it on the Sabbath, to not upset these Jews? Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath to show him that true Sabbath rest only comes to those who trust in Jesus, who look to Jesus, only comes to those to whom Jesus has come. Our epistle lesson from Hebrews 3 and 4 says that the Israelites who died in the desert did not enter Sabbath rest. Why? Because of their unbelief, it says. The good news came to them, it says, But the word they heard did not benefit them. Why? Hebrews 4, 2, because the word was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. Hebrews 4 goes on to say, as we read, there remains a rest for the people of God. And that we who have believed in Christ do enter that rest. Our rest is better than promised land that Joshua took them into. It's better than the rest that even the obedient Israelites experienced. Jesus Christ is the greater Joshua who has accomplished for us a greater Sabbath rest through his death and his resurrection. You can rest in Christ in a way that no one could rest before Christ came. You can rest in God. You can rest in God's work. You can trust God and rest in Him. And enter into the rest that all of the Sabbaths in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest in the Promised Land, 
and all the other Sabbaths point to. You have the real thing because you have Jesus, the greater Joshua. Since Jesus has made you well, how should you then live? The first thing Jesus tells us, first thing Jesus tells this man to do when he sees him again is to stop sinning. Very straightforward. Because you have been made well, you must sin no more. Verse 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. What are the implications? What's this mean? Sin no more, lest a worse thing, a worse thing come upon you. What is the worst thing? That would come upon this man if he did not turn from his sins. The worst thing is the eternal judgment that Jesus talks about just a little bit later in John chapter 5. Look at John five twenty-seven to 29. Jesus says that the father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. Verse 28. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is not saying that those who have done good have earned their way into heaven, into the resurrection of life. What it's saying is that those that God has saved will be those who do good, those who turn from their sin, those who walk in the newness of life. It's identifying those that God has saved apart from works, by their works. Those who have been healed by Jesus, but then return to the vomit of their sin, will receive something far worse than a paralyzed body. And will show that their faith was not genuine. Those who have been made well by Jesus. Must continually be about the business. Of putting their sin to death. Otherwise something worse than a paralyzed. A withered body will come upon you. If you want to come forth from your grave. To the resurrection of life. You must kill your sin. And confess Jesus as Savior and Lord and God until you die. Another way of saying this is that if you have been made well by Jesus, if he has healed you, then you must continue to be healed by him until the day you die. You have been healed to be holy. Are you willing to rise and walk in holiness. Have you counted the cost of being made well by Jesus? The crippled man in this story had to count the cost, perhaps in more ways than one. Jesus' question was a relevant one in a practical sense. In the ancient world, a disabled man who was healed would oftentimes lose a decent living. For some, it was preferable to be disabled. 
Being healthy required working hard for a living, living if you could find work. As the crippled man lay by the pool of Bethesda, he lay in misery and sorrow, to be sure. But if he looked out from those shaded porticos, those shaded porches, the five shaded porches of the pool of Bethesda, he could see men and women working in the sun, carrying their burdens, working long hours. If he were healed, he would be one of them. That is, if he could find a job. His life, in many ways, would take on larger responsibilities. It might prove, in many ways, to be more difficult than before. Do you really want to be healed? The hard part about being made well by Jesus is that he forces you to move beyond the spiritual laziness that you've become used to. He forces you to put to death your pettiness and your pride. He forces you to kill your discontentment. He forces you to leave behind your bitterness and your resentment and your unresolved conflicts. He forces you to cover over sins with love in most cases. He forces you to treat the interests of others as more important than your own, even the interests of those who have sinned against you. That's what Jesus did for every single one of us in this room. He held our interests higher than his. And he doesn't even hold a grudge about it. He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't stew on that. If you want to be healed, you must become like Jesus. Jesus heals you so that you can be holy. There's no other way. So are you willing to do that? Do you really want to be made well? Let's pray. Father, give us the desire to seek you, to seek your kingdom, and to seek the ways in which you make us whole, the ways in which you give us peace, the ways in which you make us well. Give us the grace to be willing to pursue those ways by dying to ourselves, by taking up our cross and following Jesus and imitating Jesus. We need your spirit to do this in us. So we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.